invite you to turn in the Word of God to Jeremiah chapter 33. Jeremiah chapter 33. You know, the, the Lord works sometimes in ways where you, you get to see His sovereign hand. It's always working, but you're not always aware of it or see it. But yesterday when we were preaching beside the Reedy River, and I had preached twice already. I usually preach for a time, and then I play music through the speaker and uh, give out uh, literature, and then I return and I preach again for a little while, and then play some more music and give out some more literature and try to talk to people. And I sent a text. Malachi was with me. I sent a text to Malachi after the second one saying, you know, I'm going, in 10 minutes or so, I'm going to be going. So just so you're aware, as he was with me. And uh, I was about to pack up and I thought, I'll, I'll preach just for another 10 minutes. <laughs> and I began to, to preach. And by the end of it, just as I was finishing, Malachi was talking to, he had come over and he was talking to this gentleman and... It turns out, I can't go into details, and I, I won't, but it turns out that this young man is a cousin of another man that I helped in Calgary, uh, very needy, uh, someone with lots of problems, this man. But he, the one in Calgary, his, his mother was Free Presbyterian, grew up Free Presbyterian, and lived in Canada. And her brother Stephen probably knows the family. And uh, the son was in great need, and he lived in Calgary, and I would reach out to him. Came to church a few times. Eventually, uh, actually ended up taking his mom called me one day and said, can you get him? He's meant to be on a plane to come here, and I don't know, I can't get through to him. Would you go and get him? So I, I drove over to his house, picked him up, got him in the car, <laughs> took him to the airport, and got him uh, shipped off at his mom's request. But this, this cousin of his can, can hear my accent, <laughs> and his aunt, the mother of the other man I helped, had been telling him, because it, since he had moved to Greenville some time ago, he said, you need to go to that church. And he hasn't shown his face yet, but he's downtown, and the last little session when I'm preaching, he can hear this accent, and he thinks, that has to be him. <laughs> that has to be him. So he came over. And we had a good conversation, and I encouraged him to come, and he gave me his word that he'll be here next Lord's Day evening. So pray for Ian, that God will save him, because he is not saved. And we pray that God will open his heart. Just was encouraging, just about to pack up, and you go again, and just how the Lord governs. So we thank him and praise him for his mercies. Jeremiah 33, read a few verses here, and obviously setting the tone for our day of prayer. Jeremiah 33, we'll read from verse 1. Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto Jeremiah the second time, while he was yet shut up in the court of the prison, saying, Thus saith the Lord, the maker thereof, the Lord that formed it to establish it, the Lord is his name, 
Call on to me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. For thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the houses of this city, and concerning the houses of the kings of Judah, which are thrown down by the mounts and by the sword, they come to fight with the Chaldeans, but it is to fill them with dead bodies of men, whom I have slain in mine anger and in my fury, and for all whose wickedness I have hid my face from this city. Behold, I will bring it health and cure, and I will cure them, and will reveal unto them the abundance of peace and truth. And I will cause the captivity of Judah and the captivity of Israel to return, and will build them as at the first. And I will cleanse them from all their iniquity, whereby they have sinned against me. And I will pardon all their iniquities, whereby they have sinned, and whereby they have transgressed against me. And it shall be to me a name of joy, a praise, and an honor before all the nations of the earth, which shall hear all the good that I do unto them. They shall fear and tremble for all the goodness and for all the prosperity that I procure unto it. Down to verse 15. In those days, and at that time, will I cause the branch of righteousness to grow up unto David, He shall execute judgment and righteousness in the land. In those days shall Judah be saved, and Jerusalem shall dwell safely. And this is the name wherewith she shall be called, the Lord, our righteousness. Amen. Ending our reading there. Let's seek the Lord again, beloved. We want to hear from God, so let us pray to that end. God, give help. Minister. We pray for the Holy Spirit. Oh, how we need the Holy Spirit. How we need His influence. How we need His governance. Even as we've already spoken of, we need Thee to control our every action, our every word. So God, do it here in this moment. and Reveal Thyself. Save the unsaved. But give strength and that word appropriate to thy people as we gather for prayer in this place. Come, O God. Come, O God, and move, revive, glorify thyself, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. You are likely aware that the prophet Jeremiah didn't exactly live in the most encouraging of days. His prophecy is one of lament, which the man of God is faced with endless reasons to be discouraged and all sorts of reasons to give up. The consequences of the sin of the people are very real. It is the 11th year of Zedekiah's reign, And Jeremiah finds himself now in prison. That's what we're told. He's shut up, verse 1, in the court of the prison. In the previous chapter, the first verse, it tells us that the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord in the tenth year of Zedekiah, king of Judah, 
So here he is being faithful. God is giving him a word. He declares that word. And though he's faithful, it doesn't result in what he may have hoped for, repentance, a turning of the hearts of the people. He ends up in being faithful, imprisoned. Now, I read that as a preacher in the context of the day in which you and I live, and I ask myself, will that come before my day is out? Will being faithful cost? Will it cost to the degree that we need to be prepared to be imprisoned? Will a Lord's Day come to this congregation in which someone else has to step in and bring the Word of God, not in some way that was foreplanned or arranged, but simply because your preacher has found himself in prison for faithfully preaching the Word. It may happen. It may happen. And we have to be aware that that is a possibility in any generation, and given the trend that we are in currently, it is likely, if it continues in the way that it is, that faithful preachers of the Word are more and more going to find themselves in trouble with the law just for being faithful. I'm not talking about those that go looking for trouble. And there are those. There are those that go looking for trouble. I made mention of this back when the whole uh, COVID thing was going on and men were being imprisoned in Canada. And one man was getting a lot of attention, uh, but uh, he's in Calgary. And I, and I was acquainted with him in my time there. And I, I just said, well, I mean, you could have guessed he would end up arrested because he's always arrested. It doesn't have to be, you know, COVID and restrictions and so on to get in trouble. He's always looking for trouble. He's always finding himself in trouble with the law. And so the fact that it would happen during that occasion uh, was inevitable. And what was sad was the faithful men were being lumped in with him. There were men being faithful and were imprisoned that are not troublemakers, respectful men who love the Lord. And they were imprisoned also. And had their trials. But add it to that, and everyone, because they're from a distance and they're reading it from so far away, they think they're all the same. They're all these faithful men. No, they're not. They're not all the same. But faithful men will. They'll pay the price. And just like Paul, they will learn, and we will learn, that even in such times, God is doing it for His glory. As Paul writes to the Philippians, you don't have to worry. Don't be stressed. Don't be anxious about this. This is working out for the furtherance of the gospel. God is using this. Don't be too distressed. And God was using it in Jeremiah as well. God was using him as comfort. He, to this very day, stands as comfort to preachers and to the church in our day also. Well, God takes his faithful preachers at times and gives them hardship. And yet, though they may be bound by the world and imprisoned and prevented from going about their normal, natural business... The word's not bound. And Jeremiah had God come to him with another word. A word that was appropriate for the occasion. A word that would encourage him, even though he couldn't go about with the same freedom as he once had, it was appropriate for the occasion. And at the head of it, you see verse 2, Thus saith the Lord, the maker thereof, the Lord that formed it to establish it. The Lord is his name. There's a question about what, what's being referred to here. And, and I, I think... I, I put it to you, that it's just a way of describing the very Word. It is God. God has given His Word. He's the maker of the Word. He forms it. He establishes it. The Lord is His name. And what does He say? Call unto me, and I will answer thee, 
and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Now, I've spoken to you before about the text behind me here. It was the text that was behind the church wall in, in Balamone, where I was, like, as a new convert and a member of that church, my sending church, as it were, as well as being in Calgary. But what I've not told you, I don't think, is that in Balamone also there was a prayer meeting room. Not just the main church building, but most of the churches there that are established have another, like kind of like our fellowship building, but it's, it's mostly set aside, the chairs are all laid out for prayer. It's smaller, and it's a place where you meet on Wednesday night or whatever to seek the Lord. Well, in that building, when they built that, just at the time I was converted, and they were thinking about what text to put on the wall in that building, this is the text that the Reverend Park and the session there put on the wall. Jeremiah 33, verse 3. Call unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. And beloved, when we come to our day of prayer, it's verses like this that we need to put at the forefront of our minds. You, like Jeremiah, have all sorts of reasons to think this is, this is a waste of time. There's nothing that can be done to change the world in which we're living. The momentum towards sin and against God is undeniable. And yet, yet, let me just say, even in discussion yesterday with, with that young man, someone who doesn't believe in God, sees no reason for the existence of God, yet at the same time is seeing the madness of the world and you're able to point out the inconsistencies of his thinking. Why does it matter? Why does it matter? If, if this world has no God, if you're right and there's no God, then why does it matter that the world is getting crazier? How are you evaluating that? Because that's what he's saying. He's saying like this, like, the, the world just gets stranger and stranger. So well, how do you evaluate that? The strangeness is in departure from some standard. That's how you, 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 you recognize the strangeness. Otherwise, you can't really describe it as strange. It's strange because there is a standard set. It is God's Word. And in comparison to that, and even though he denies God, the world in which he lives, the frame of reference that he has, is undergirded by a Christian worldview. And so in comparison to that worldview, that standard, it seems strange what's going on in our world today. But we are not to be discouraged. We are not to imagine that there's nothing that we can do. Jeremiah is imprisoned. What can I do? God says, call on to me. He gives him much here, but our focus is on verse 3. And I want us to think about it here with the Lord's help. Let's look at it very simply. And I've titled it simply, Why We Should Pray. Why We Should Pray. You're having a day of prayer. As I said, you have 18 prayer meetings. Your Wednesday nights, the prayer meetings before the services, the two Friday nights, the Saturday mornings, and you know, roughly about 18, maybe sometimes more, times of prayer. Why? Why bother? Why even have it in our service? Why not just come and have everything but the prayer? Or, or why not abbreviate the prayer? Why not shorten it down to most 
like it is in most religious services today. It's like 30 second, God be with us today, and, and the rest of it. Why, why, why pray for these specific things? Why, why have this kind of uh, overarching, looking at different aspects of the life of the church and individuals? Why do that? Why? Why bother? Well, this text in part gives us an answer. Why we should pray. First of all, there's a great invitation. There's a great invitation. Call unto me, God says. Call unto me. That's what he's saying. Call unto me. We see here first the simplicity in the invitation. Call. Call unto me. God's not looking for something complex. One of the wonderful things about prayer is its simplicity. And here's a man imprisoned, and he doesn't have a light, and he maybe doesn't have all that he would like in terms of reading material and study material and things that he would naturally have if he wasn't in prison. He doesn't have that, and he can say to himself, well, I can't write, and I can't study, and I can't do this, and I can't do that, and there are many things I can't do. I can't write letters or whatever. There are lots of things he can't do. God comes with a word that begins by saying, well, here's what you can do. You can pray. That's not insignificant. Isn't it it true that much of our prayerlessness is caused by the fact that we feel like there are all these other things that we should do and can do? And if we were to be imprisoned, if we were to find ourselves locked up, we we would be locked into... This sense that, well, I can't do all that stuff anymore, but I can pray. So what happens sometimes when you end up in a bed of sickness? In fact, I have to believe at times that's why we end up in a bed of sickness. We've neglected prayer. And God puts you on your back in such a way you can't do anything else. All your plans are shelved by the sovereign hand of divine providence that says, no, you're not. That's not. That's your plan, but you're not going to execute it. I'm going to put you on your back. You realize there's nothing I can do. Well, I guess I must pray. It is a glorious thing that prayer is so simple, that communion with God is simple. It's how we begin our Christian life, isn't it? I was preaching yesterday from Romans 10, 13, one of the texts I was emphasizing. Call, uh, where it says, uh, whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord. And, you know, emphasizing that fact, this is, this is simple. I'm not calling you to a program, to a whole series of things you must do. God says this, anyone at all, if you do the simplest thing that you can do, directed toward the true God, You'll be saved. Anyone doing the simplest thing that we learn to do from infancy. I'm quite sure little Stephen cried. That's what they do, isn't it? When they're born, they try to get them to cry, get those lungs working. And so they're made to cry. And even in their lack of awareness or consciousness, there's, there's a cry. There's, it's almost like this, the life in them is looking for help can't articulate that help or desire for help, but it just just cries, lets out this, this cry. And so all through the maternity wards, as babies are born, the cries come out. 
That's how you know the child has been delivered. You start to hear the cry. Well, so, so it is when we're saved, isn't it? You begin to see this cry. The Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, offered many prayers his entire life. He was taught how to kind of approach God and what words to use. But when he's converted and he has life, Ananias is told by God, Behold, he prayeth. He prayeth. Why is that a strange thing? I would expect a Pharisee to pray. Ah, But (laughs) he never prayed like this before. Now he is this life that is coming forth from his heart. This man who has met with Christ is calling upon his God. Oh, we may not be able to preach, but we can pray. It doesn't even require the facility of light. Yes, that's that's why even God brings us into darkness, isn't it? He brings us into periods of darkness. When we can't see, and I'm not even talking about physical darkness, I'm talking about the darkness of life and those dark periods where you, and some of you may know this, you can't even read the Word through physical exhaustion or mental distraction or the burden of your soul. You're really struggling even to read. And that may sound a strange thing if you've never been there before, but if you've been there, you'll understand it. But there in that darkness when you can't even read the Word and you're just so overwhelmed with grief or sorrow or confusion or difficulty, in that darkness, prayer doesn't require the light. It doesn't require all the other things we need even to read the Scriptures. It's just a cry, even in the darkness. God invites us. Call unto me, Jeremiah. I know you can't go about your ministry. Call unto me. Call unto me. The simplicity invitation. Praise God that that's all that is required. Of course, this could not be the case unless the gospel, there was such a thing as the gospel. Because how do sinners approach God? I mean, there's all these barriers of our, our sin and, and, and at the, whether God would actually listen to us or not. I mean, so there's the problem in us. There's, there's the issue of whether he would pay attention or not. Why? Well, without getting into any great detail, this is, this is the covenant grounds established by the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ in which the divine, a divinely appointed representative stands in our place Upholds all that is demanded. He puts himself forward in covenant vow to say, I will do what is necessary so that this people can come before a holy God in confidence. Not established on the basis of their own obedience, but on mine. I mean, we read it. It's the prophecy, isn't it? It's what he is known as. When he is declared in verse 16, the Lord our righteousness. She shall be called the Lord our righteousness. The name for the people of God. The name for the people of God. Oh, what a title for the people of God. What a way of describing the people of God. How do you know that they're God's people? Because written over them is this truth. The Lord, Jehovah, is their 
righteousness is something that he has given, not something they offer. So, we come then, and it's so simple, the simplicity of this invitation call. Well, we're going to do that. And some of you maybe aren't as mature or, let's say, advanced in your Christian experience. You feel like you have a lot to learn. Don't worry. You can call, can't you? Even the children, you're welcome to, to pray. Call upon the Lord. Ask God for something that's on your heart. The spirituality in the invitation. Call unto me. Call unto me. Not just calling in empty space. We're not, we're not meditating. We're not performing yoga here and emptying our heads and breathing out a golden thread. You know, as whatever. This is not what we're doing. You know, trying to empty our minds. No! No, 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 no. No, I want my mind filled. Filled with a sense of God. Who God is. And how do I fill my mind with who God is and understand Him? Well, I do. I read His Word. I understand His Word and what He has said about Himself. That's, what, that's how it begins, isn't it? Verse 2. Really, what, what God is giving to Jeremiah is a sense of who it is He approaches. The Lord is the maker thereof that formed it to establish it. The Lord is His name. He's getting His mind on God so that he has a proper focus. And so, in our prayer, we are coming to this God. We're coming to Him. And we have this relationship with Him so we can come onto Him. Yes. We've been adopted, haven't we? Adopted. A legal document has been drawn up, as it were. The Lord has said, they shall be mine. And he says, you're mine. You're my child. You're my child. That means you call unto me. Don't call to a God that is no God. Don't call to one that doesn't belong to you. Call unto me. I'm your God. So we have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. Romans 8, 15. Spirit of adoption, in order that we might call upon God as our Father. Call unto me. So that's what we're doing. And we're not gathering today to get God on our side, all right? He already is. We're not coming to convince Him. Lord, would you take our side in this battle for truth? He already is. Or let's put it this way. He has brought us onto his side. We're not trying to convince him to look at us and to, we're not trying to earn his favor. It has already been earned. But he has so ordered this world that he wants his people to commune with him, to call onto him. And at times he brings us through seasons when we are likely to call upon other names, other helps. And let me say, there's nothing wrong with the, the, the things that, we, that are available to us. I mean, it's not wrong to, to keep politicians and hold them accountable 
and call on to them and say, like, what are you doing here? Or what's your position on this issue? And hold them accountable. It's not wrong. It's not wrong to call your doctor when you're unwell and to ask him, could he look and help and see whether there's something that is going on in your body or whatever. It's not wrong to call upon other things and and means. But, 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 even in our calling upon other legitimate things, why is it that often we ignore God? We're not to ignore God. Call on to me. So that's what we're doing today. Calling on to God. There is also here not only a great invitation, but a great promise, isn't there? Call on to me, and I will answer thee. And I will answer thee. I will answer thee. What a word. That's a good word, isn't it? So we're coming to pray, and we wonder, well, will God hear me? He says, call on to me, and I will answer thee. Now, answers to prayer come in various ways, don't they? We might say that the promise of an answer may first of all come directly. It may come directly. In Acts chapter 12 you see this, a well-known passage to many of you, but turn there, especially those of you that may not immediately know. If I say Acts 12 and you don't immediately know what's going on here, then it's even more incumbent on you to turn there and be familiar with what's going on. Well, You remember that in the disciples there was an inner circle, Peter, James, and John. And naturally they were seen as the leaders of the leaders. The Lord Jesus has no problem in kind of singling out among his people those that take certain positions of leadership and responsibility even among the leaders themselves. And so Peter, James, and John function in that capacity and one of them is killed. Herod, verse 2, killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. That's not what you want. You know, in this early part of the church's existence, in her first few decades of getting established, you can't easily give up the lives of her leaders. Well, Peter then, you see verse 3, because he saw, Herod saw, It pleased the Jews. He proceeded further to take Peter also. Ah, you see, attacking Christians for political reasons. You know, (laughs) politics. I mean, you can't can't skip it. It's always there. Sometimes, sometimes politics actually works in the favor of Christianity. That is to say, political motions are made in order to placate and to stand or be perceived as standing on the side of the church. And that happens too. Now, God may use it, but don't be deceived by it. Don't be deceived, but He may use it. He does use it, but don't be deceived by it. <laughs> Our deliverance is not in that or in them. But often it can be against us as well. Verse 4. So He takes Peter also. When he had apprehended him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four quaternions of soldiers to keep him, intending after Easter to bring him forth to the people. So after Passover is done, he's going to bring him out. Peter therefore was kept in prison, but, but, but what? Petition was made to Herod. A big protest happened, you know, like it's happening in Iran right now. You know, take to the streets. 
and so on. Let's, let's get all the God's people on the streets. Let's bring them from everywhere. Let's gather them in from everywhere. We've got, we've got a few days here. Let's, let's get this huge big crowd of people to come and protest on the streets. No. Prayer was made without ceasing. Oh, how convicting that is. Oh, beloved. To pray and keep on praying. Do you have the stamina for it? Do you have the stomach for it? There aren't many. Prayer was made without ceasing of the church unto God for him. And why would they do that? Well, because God had given them a great invitation. Call unto me. And a great promise. I will answer thee. And show thee great and mighty things, which thou knowest not. And this is a great example of it, because when you read on down, of course, and Peter is released, and we come to verse 13, Peter knocked at the door of the gate, a damsel came to hearken named Rhoda, and when she knew Peter's voice, she opened not the gate for gladness, but ran in and told how Peter stood before the gate, and they said unto her, Thou art mad. (laughs) This can't be. We're praying. We're praying for Peter. She comes. Peter's here. You're mad. You're mad. Oh, dear. Oh, the church. We are so infirmed. But she constantly affirmed that it was even so. Then said they, it is his angel. All right. Okay. Maybe you're not mad, but you're, you're misunderstanding who it is. Because he's going to die just like James. We're praying. We're praying for him. And again, I don't know what they were praying. I imagine they were praying for his release. You know, the... I think there was that, but there may have been praying for his release, but also, well, if he must die, Lord, give him grace to die well, to die as a Christian, to die holding on with resolution to Christ. <sighs> but Peter continued knocking. Well, he knocked without ceasing. And it was a good job. And when they had opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. They were astonished. They were amazed. Oh, Yes. God comes and does exceeding abundantly above what you can ask or think when he shows you great and mighty things which you knew not. Do you not crave something like that? Hmm? You're not looking for it? Well, where's the place we're most likely to discover it? It's in prayer. It's in prayer. And it may not come today, but maybe it will. I've got unbelief too. Lord, I believe. Help thou my unbelief. It may come directly. We may come and seek God and say, Lord, send revival. Or God, save the soul. And it just happens right there. Immediately. So the promise of an answer may come directly. The promise of an answer may come differently. In 2 Corinthians 12, it tells us of Paul's thorn in his flesh. And again, if you're You've heard of that, I have have no doubt. But it may be good for you just to review what is said there because the answer comes, but it comes differently than the way in which he might have imagined. And he is praying and seeking God. 
He writes in verse 6, Though I would desire to glory, I shall not be a fool, for I will say the truth. But now I forbear, lest any man should think of me above that which he saith me to be, or that he heareth of me, and lest I should be exalted above measure through the abundance of the revelations. There was given to me a thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I should be exalted above measure. In fact, if I could just stop for a moment. That's, that's God, in a certain way, putting Paul on his back. Like I was talking about earlier. When you're not praying, and God puts you on your back, sometimes to actually teach you, you need to start praying. This was how God, in a certain fashion, put Paul on his back, or made him very dependent, so that he was kept low and dependent on the Lord. For this thing, this thorn, I besought the Lord thrice that it might depart from me. In other words, he doesn't know. He, he doesn't know. In this case, he is not aware what the Lord's will is. So, so he takes this position. He says, well, since I don't know, it's kind of like this thing going on between him and God where he says, okay, I'm going to pray about this. Three distinct seasons, I'm going to pray about this. I don't know how he broke them up, whether they were three days one after the other, or he said, I'm going to give uh, Fridays over the next three weeks, and I'm going to pray about this thing. I don't know exactly how it looked. Maybe it was three times once a month. Like one, one month, I'm going to pray a whole day or whatever, or a couple of days about this in this month, and then if it doesn't go away, the next month I'll do it. Three times, whatever it was, he, he, he sets in his mind these three seasons. And if it's not, if I don't get the outcome that I desire, then I'll leave it there. Now, sometimes you have to deal with things that way because you don't know. It's not immediately obvious what God is doing through it. And there's a part of you that says, I don't like this and I don't want it. There's also a part that says, God may use this and that if He's going to use it, then I'm okay with it. And so you come to Him and you pray. Now, you may find yourself that way even when, let's say, you or a loved one are sick. That's an example that will face us all at some point or other. And we don't know what God's doing. He might raise them up. He might. Or He might not. We know that He is perfectly right and just and good to do either. So how, what, how, how do we handle that? I, I think Paul helps us here. He, gives, he says, I'm going, I'm going to set this season. I'm going to set these seasons. I'm not saying as a rule. I just There's a pattern, certainly, to help us. So he beseeches the Lord thrice. And he said unto me, He came in some way, revealed to him, My grace is sufficient for thee. Those are hard words, aren't they? You're, you're, you're wanting something lifted. You're wanting it to change. Change it, Lord. And he comes and says, My grace is sufficient for thee. The answer you seek is not the change of the circumstances. The answer you seek is more of me. 
My strength is made perfect in weakness. And so he comes to terms, most gladly, therefore will I rather glory in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So the promise of an answer may come directly or differently. The promise of an answer may be delayed. Daniel 10. Go to Daniel 10. Daniel is, as we refer to him, a man of prayer. He seeks God. And we find him in the place of prayer in chapter 10 once again. And in the third year, verse 1, of Cyrus, king of Persia, a thing was revealed unto Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar. And the thing was true, but the time appointed was long. And he understood the thing and had understanding of the vision. So God's giving him understanding that heretofore he did not know. So with that new information, verse 2, In those days I, Daniel, was mourning three full weeks. I ate no pleasant bread, neither came flesh nor wine in my mouth, neither did I anoint myself at all till three whole weeks were fulfilled. Here's another man setting aside a season as he seeks to understand or like come to grips with what has been revealed to him. And so we're told then, verse 5, that he lifts his eyes and he is sees this appearance of one. Like the time is running on. So go down to verse 12. And here's the message that is given to him. Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that thou didst set thine heart to understand and to chasten thyself before thy God, thy words were heard, and I am come for thy words. So it feels like there's been this long delay, and there has been. But... The Lord brings it to pass eventually, comes to him in answer to prayer eventually. Sometimes things are delayed, and that is the case often. Also then, we may say, the promise of an answer may be denied. And I'll not turn to it, but 1 Kings 19.4, where Elijah desires to die. And he, he's longing for this, but it's denied him. It's going to happen at some point, of course, or at least he thinks, but he's wanting it then. And God is not, even Elijah's point, he's going to take it away from him entirely. He's going to disappear in chariots of fire into heaven itself. So it may be denied. And that itself is a form of an answer. It is what God wants for us, and therefore it is best. So let's go back to our text. Call unto me, and I will answer thee, and show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. I will answer thee. You call, and I will answer. And so finally then, there's a great outcome. He will show us great and mighty things, which thou knowest not. In this great outcome, first, it shows the degree of God's power. Show thee great and mighty things. The realm of great and mighty things belongs to God alone, you know. We are easily impressed We talk about great and mighty men, and the scripture talks about mighty men. I get it. But often their might is based on the fact that they are doing what they are doing by the the power of God. 
But we are, we are so easily, like we look at records, you know, and we see people accomplish certain things. You see individuals that are seemingly able to do things that man should not be able to do. And we're impressed. And I get it. I get it. I've been there. I've been there. But it's not often as great and mighty. It's often a product of, of, of muscle memory and discipline and pursuing a course of action with resolve and making sacrifices in almost every other conceivable area of their lives. You're thinking of sportsmen, businessmen, politicians, people who succeed in various ways. Often it is because they've really just stripped everything down. This is the one goal. This is all that matters. Those master, master musicians, they don't do it by practicing two or three times a week. They have cut away almost every normal interaction of life to devote themselves to this thing, the mastery of an instrument. Same with the sportsman. So they do great and mighty things because they've invested all this time and energy and effort. But God, God doesn't do that. He doesn't have to invest like that and make such sacrifices. He, he, perfor- he is the one in which true great and mighty things are sourced. The realm then, I say again, of the truly great and mighty things belongs to God. The nations are as a drop in a bucket to him. There is nothing. And so when we come and we bring this, these things and we might say, okay, Lord, we want to turn the nation around. Well, well we, may, we may have a strategy to do that and accomplish that. And possibly it might happen. I mean, what's happening in Iran, I mentioned it already, but what's happening in Iran is, is strategy. It's a form of strategy, isn't it? You're trying to bring about a revolution by getting thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of people on the street chanting mantras, getting them riled up, moving them in a certain direction, making them feel a certain way, getting a new generation to revolt against the old guard, as it were. And with the momentum, hopefully you bring about change. That can work. But that's not what you see generally in the Word of God, is it? You don't see Jehoshaphat going into Jerusalem and starting mantras to encourage him in the face of this massive army that is outside the walls. He says, neither know we what to do. I don't know what to do. But our eyes are upon thee. Our eyes are upon thee. Because you're the God of great and mighty things. And you're able to do things that we simply can't do, nor would we want if you're not in it. So, God is able, and I wish, beloved, we could raise our sights a little higher and our prayers would come up as well and we begin to really lay hold on God and pray. That person that needs deliverance in your life, that you begin to 
name them confidently before God. They're not an impossible do it. He can change it. Whatever it is, some of you have it. Look upon your faces. I, I, I can see. I know the impossibility. You can put it right and just put a circle right around it. I know exactly what it is. I want you to behold your God. He says to you today, call unto me. I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things. He not only shows the degree of God's power in this text, he shows the defect, the defect of man's vision. The defect of man's vision, which thou knowest not. Things that you can't envisage or you find difficult to imagine. <sighs> Jeremiah had the same Old Testament that you have, largely. Not all of it, but greater, greater bulk of it he had. And he had all sorts of examples that could show to him that God did unbelievable things for his people in the past. And <sighs> You know, just you know, taking the Exodus just as one example. I mean, there are others. There are others. Just the exact, uh, Exodus is that one kind of pinnacle example of he can do great and mighty things which we could never have imagined or envisaged would come to pass. He can do it. So Jeremiah was a little like us. At times, you know, you come into this, this season where you think, I, I just don't see it ever happening. I don't see how they can be converted. They have gone so far. And we've lost, we've lost sight of what God is able to do. That perhaps God has permitted them to go that far. They have gone that far. That he brings more glory to himself in the recovery. That he teaches you something. At the very point where you begin to say, because maybe at one point you thought, I see how it's possible, and you're praying believingly, but as it, the matter has drifted further out of reach and beyond grasp, and it seems to have extended beyond the realm of hope, can't grasp it anymore. It's gone. There's a time where you could feel it, and you could pull it near, and you could say, I could see how this will come to pass. But, but the issue... The person, the matter, the problem, the difficulty has gone way out beyond grasp. And you can't feel it anymore. You can't reach for it with your fingers. God says to you today, beloved, He says to you, listen to what I am saying. Call unto me. I will answer thee and show thee great and mighty things. Things outside the grasp. Just ask for it. Keep asking, keep seeking, keep knocking. Don't give up. Don't quit. Don't stop. Don't lose heart. Don't bow the head in such a fashion like you've, you've, you've just resolved that it will never be. No. No, no, no. 
comes again and says, No, call unto me, and I will answer thee. I show thee great and mighty things which thou knowest not. Oh, lift up your eyes, Christian. Fill your vision. Behold your God. That's what we need. It's not. That's, that's part of the problem, isn't it? As, a, as the problem looms and seems to get larger and more out of reach, and we can't get our arms around it anymore, it, it casts a shadow. It casts a shadow over God. It seems to be bigger than God. We can't see Him anymore. We stop praying. We stop naming it and asking. The devil looks and says, that's exactly where I want you to be. Where I have taken that circumstance that God has brought into your life and I have cast a big shadow and it looms. And hope has evaporated. So we come to pray today. Maybe we find it even difficult to actually get the prayer out of our lips. And so we'll come today. And do you know what we'll do? We'll, we'll, we'll groan. Spirit will take that groaning spirit. And present it before the Lord Jesus. He understands the vocabulary of your groan. One man said, Men may spurn our appeals, reject our message, oppose our arguments, despise our persons but they are helpless against our prayers. I wish we believed that. Call unto me. I will answer thee. You know, I was musing over this this morning. thinking about Acts 12 specifically. And you know, what came to mind, I felt a little like, I said, Lord, I'm like Peter. I'm imprisoned. Not in the way Peter was. But I think, I think you could look at church leaders and you could look at many of us that ought to know better. Uh, it's like we've been imprisoned to a life of prayerlessness, or almost prayerlessness, or prayers that are very shallow and not like our forefathers. And we can't break out. We can't break out. Maybe what we're doing today is coming to pray for ourselves that we break out of the prison of prayerlessness and unbelief 
that we can actually get onto the ground to see God do great and mighty things. May the Lord help us. Let's bow together in prayer. In just a moment we will go downstairs and enjoy a time of food and fellowship. I need you, I need you to, to take this, to, to put, a, to put a, a wall around the word you've just heard. Try and put a wall around it, sort of hold on to it, bottle it, so that you can bring it back and pray over it later. Lord, help us. We are weak, but thou art strong. And God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, will not we fear, even if the earth is removed and the mountains are carried into the midst of the sea. Help us to be still and know that thou art God. Help us this day, we pray. Please, O God, break into our hearts and lives with a fresh baptism of believing prayer. Gird our hearts with the promises of God. Give strength to our weak resolve to seek the Lord. Make this a day of thy right hand. So bless our time together and hear us. And may the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit be with all.